Well, please turn, if you're not already there, to Acts chapter 1. I encourage you to use your Bible. This is God's Word, and it's a, it's a privilege to be able to have it, to handle it, to use it. So I'd encourage you to follow along with us. We're studying the life of Peter. And we've gone through the Gospels, and we've seen this young man, Peter, who has all the answers, is full of energy, talks too much, puts his foot in his mouth. Well, I think there's a transition that's taking place in the life of Peter. Peter is growing spiritually as we move into the book of Acts. We're going to see a different Peter. And we're not going to see it today, but we're going to work our way into that point. We're going to see Peter growing, and I would just ask you, are you growing spiritually? Is there spiritual growth? Is there change taking place in your life? We look at Peter, we see Peter moving and growing Is that happening in your life? If you're a child of God, there should be growth. It may be slow, but if there's no growth in your life, then I would challenge you to get on your knees and examine your heart and examine your soul. So as we move into Acts, the book of Acts can be compared to the events of God's people coming out of Egypt. There are some unique things that happened in the Exodus, and there are some unique things that happened in the book of Acts. So what are some of those things coming out of Exodus? Well, we have the plagues, we have the Red Sea parting, we have manna from heaven, and there are things in Acts that are unique. Now, some commentators will go so far as to say these things will not be repeated. I would, I would tend to agree with that, but I want to be a bit slow in saying that because I don't want to limit God. God's going to do what God wants to do. It would appear that many of those things are unique and they will not be repeated, but I'm not going to go that far. To say that. So as we look at chapter 1, as chapter 1 opens, this is just staggering. There is no Christian church. Now think about that. I've been going to church all my life. Church is on every corner. I take the church for granted. But as we enter chapter 1, folks, there is no church. We're too far back for that. It doesn't exist. So Acts is the Great Commission happening. The Holy Spirit has not come. The apostles do not have power. Yet by the last chapter of this book, the Christian church is going to cover every corner of the known world. R.C. Sproul says that Acts is the autobiography of the Holy Spirit. Luke and Acts take up about 30% of the New Testament. Now, some scholars believe that Luke also wrote the book of Hebrews. If he wrote Hebrews, then that means that more of the New Testament was written by a man who was not an apostle, was not a Jew, was a Gentile, and was a small figure in the early church, which is just amazing. I said last week that one man said that Acts is the most important book in the New Testament. Why would he say that? We're going to try and answer that question as the weeks roll by. But where would we be without the book of Acts? So Luke builds a bridge between his gospel and Acts. So without Acts, we would jump from John's gospel to the book of Romans. So we would be asking the questions, how in the world did the church get to Rome? We wouldn't know. We would be reading about a man named Paul. We would say, who is this Paul? We would ask the question as we move forward, where did all these churches come from? We wouldn't have the answers for that. Acts also gives us a pattern. 
It gives us a pattern of how to start a church. Our presbytery is looking at planting some churches. Acts gives us a pattern there. There's a pattern of Christian testimony. There's a pattern of evangelism, worldwide evangelism. There's a pattern of missionary effort, a pattern that we can learn from and that we should follow. One man said Acts is the second volume of a story that has no end. And that's true. I mentioned last week about the pastor who was asked the question, how old is your church? And he thought for a moment and he said, 2,000 years. What was he doing? He was connecting to the church history here. So Acts, what's recorded in Acts is your history. It's our history. These people that we're going to read about are your brothers and sisters. So Acts is an important turning point in church history. And our job is to continue the mission that is found in this book. So in Acts, we have to know how to do that. It's going to tell us how to do it. So how should we read it? We should read it in light of Luke's gospel with the same author. We should read it with our Bible open in front of us, our entire Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. It opens as a story that's already in progress. We could call this the book of the Holy Spirit. And at this point in our study, we don't know a lot about the Holy Spirit, but we're going to learn. So let's start with verse 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So the first account, what's he talking about? He's opening with a connection to the past. He's opening with a connection to his gospel, the gospel of Luke. So he starts by looking back. He addresses it to Theophilus. Now that's the same name that his gospel is addressed to. Now there are some people who believe that this is not a particular person. It's just a, a, a name. Well, the title means lover of God, and I would tend to agree with the folks who hold that position because his gospel opens by saying most excellent Theophilus. So that's a title, and that's the same title that's used by Peter to address Felix and Festus in this book who are real people. It's used to refer to someone who's over, who has authority, is over a company, a group of people, some kind of influence. Now, on that day, dedications were common. Maybe Theophilus paid for this work. It takes time and money to do the research of a gospel and to put the book of Acts together and talk to all these different people. Maybe he was recently saved. He wants to know more information. So he said, Luke, if you'll research it, I'll pay for it. We don't know, but that very well could be what happened. So notice the end of verse 1. All that Jesus began to do and teach... Now, that is a very similar opening to his gospel in Luke chapter 1. So this is an emphasis placed by Luke. Luke's gospel was the beginning of what Jesus began to do. But notice the order. All that Jesus began to do and teach. Notice the order there. Doing always comes before teaching. Always. One man said there must be power in our lives before there is power in our message. And that's absolutely true. No one wants to listen to someone who isn't living it out. There has to be power in our lives. So God says he wants you to do before you teach. You must be able to 
Obey before you can teach others. And obeying at times can be hard. So you must be able to obey before you can teach others. If we're selfish, if we're proud, how in the world are we going to be a blessing to someone else? So Jesus sets the example. He came to do and to teach. And for 30 years, he was constantly doing. So this is what Jesus began to do. And I would just ask you, as you're sitting there this morning, are you doing something for the cause of Christ? What are you doing for the Lord? Are you sitting and taking, which we should do, but are you also doing something? You can say, yes, Lord, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. Jesus wants us to do something. In the book of Acts, there is a lot of doing taking place. So the book isn't finished. There's more work to be done. So Acts is about what Jesus commands us to do. All right, verse 2. Until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. He was taken up to heaven. So they're not going to see Jesus often. Jesus is going to be leaving. How will he carry on the work? He talks about the Holy Spirit. After he had by the Holy Spirit given orders. So the Holy Spirit is going to take over. And the Holy Spirit is now going to instruct the apostles. So the entire book of Acts is Jesus instructing the church through the Holy Spirit. That's how he's going to finish the work. So in the first two verses, we see the main players in the book. We see Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the apostles. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the apostles. Now notice it closes by saying, whom he has chosen. The sovereignty of God. The Lord is sovereign in control of his church, and the Lord is sovereign as to who will be in his church. All right, verse 3. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of heaven. So he presented himself after rising from the dead. We see that he was with them for 40 days. Luke is the only one that tells us about the 40 days. So Jesus, at this point, is coming and going from heaven to earth. And the apostles never know when he's going to show up. Why is that happening? Because they have to get used to working without him. So Jesus gave them this very important mission. But before they can do the mission, they need 40 days with Jesus. The gospel tells us that they needed convincing. They were slow in many, many things to pick up stuff. Very slow, as some of us are. I'm slow at times. So it took Jesus 40 days, put it one way, it took 40 days for him to fix their bad theology. And we're going to see that there was ongoing problems with the men themselves. So he, he is setting them on the right course. That's one of his goals. Think about the road to Emmaus, how Jesus met with the men, and he was telling those folks how the Old Testament applied to what he was doing with his life. So by the end of the book, we're going to see them back on the right track, but right now they don't have the power to do it. So verses 2 and 3 show us that truth is an important part and a 
important place in Christianity. And we live in a day where there are people who will teach you in college classrooms that there's no such thing as truth. But that's just, they cannot live that way. If they say that, they can say it with their mouth, but they cannot live that way. They live their lives as if there's truth. But that's just a contradiction that we find in many unbelievers. So what does Jesus teach them? At the end of verse 3, the kingdom of God, things concerning the kingdom of God. So that's the focus of what Jesus wants to teach them. It took him 40 days. What do we learn from that? We learn that people that want to work for the Lord need to be well-trained. And that's one reason why in the Presbyterian church, men who want to plant churches and are after graduating from seminary, they're ordained, which means they're set aside. They've been examined by the presbytery. We're saying you are qualified. Now go out and do the job. We see that Jesus is very busy after he rises from the dead. So did he teach them the rest of the Bible? Did he clear up a lot of their misunderstandings? He grounds them in their faith, and they're going to need it. So this shows us how important training is. Did Jesus use the Old Testament to explain the New Testament? Jesus is now turning the ministry over to them. You men are going to carry on the work. Now, there's something going on in the modern church today, thankfully not all churches, but many churches today, experience is replacing the Bible as our source of authority. Experience is replacing the Bible as our source of authority, and that's a problem. I've talked to you before about David's well, David Wells' book, no place for truth. And one thing he said in that book is that theology is disappearing. And he wrote that book probably back in the 90s. If theology was disappearing then, it's, 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 it's even less emphasis today. Much preaching today is focused on the experience of our faith or some inspiring thought or some focus on feeling good. And folks, there's a place for that. There's a place for that as the application, but that cannot be the primary emphasis in our preaching of God's Word. It wasn't Jesus' emphasis as he's working with the apostles. He's getting ready to leave. What's he going to talk to them about? The end of verse 3, the kingdom of God. So in many churches, the Bible is no longer our primary factor in determining the behavior of believers, and we can't let that happen. Uh, do you know, uh, many of you know, Janie and I were at, this week, we went up to the Ark and the Creation Museum, which was a fantastic experience, and if you haven't been there, you have to go. You will learn, you will leave encouraged, you have to go. Plan it. If you don't have the money, set it aside, work on it, but you need to get there. Go see that. No. We saw some videos while we were there, and one thing that disappointed me, a big emphasis there, of course, is six-day creation, and God creating the world in 24-hour days. And one of the videos that they showed us was by Pastor Andy Stanley. And I have a lot of respect for 
Andy Stanley because he's written some books that I've gotten a lot out of. I've benefited from those. But we saw a clip, and this is not a quote, but this is, this is overall what he said. He said, if there's a conflict between your, he was talking about six-day creation. If there's a conflict between your theology and science, you need to change your theology. Whoa. Whoa. I heard it myself, folks. This is a man who's speaking to thousands of people every Sunday morning. So what is his highest authority in that illustration? Science. Not God's word. And one thing I wonder was, where are his elders? The elders have responsibility to oversee everyone that stands behind this podium and what they say, including me. Where are his elders? Why aren't they dealing with that? I couldn't believe that. So that just goes to show you, preachers are sinners, and they can make mistakes. And you don't put your total trust in any man who stands in this podium, including me. Because I can do things that are wrong. And Andy Stanley, bless his heart, is just wrong on that. And I hope he figures that out with all the people that he's preaching to. Think about some of the emphasis of, of feelings and things like that in churches today. Here's the New Age. One of the New Agers said, kneel to yourself. Here's another one. Honor and worship your own being. Here's one. God dwells in you as you. Now, maybe some of you are sharper than I am, but quite frankly, I don't, I don't know what that means. So if some of you know what that means, you can explain that to me. But what do we need to do? We need to teach people today how to study their Bible and apply it to their lives in a post-Christian world. Because that's where we live. We're living in a post-Christian world. So Jesus gave the apostles a very important mission. Got a little quote I want to read to you from R.C. Sproul. He writes, Years ago, I was in the middle of a controversy over the doctrine of justification, faith alone, a controversy that never dies. And I remember when he was in that controversy. It was nationwide stuff. During a meeting of theologians, someone was defending the reformational doctrine of justification when another said to him, well, Luther may have been right in the 16th century, but it doesn't matter anymore. And the other theologian said, it's not the 16th century gospel I'm interested in defending. What concerns me is the first century doctrine. And that's what we're looking at. We are looking at the first century doctrine. All right, so what will these men do after Jesus leaves? Look at verse 4. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. So he commands them. He gives them their marching orders. These are not suggestions. But what is the very first command that he gives them? You know what it is? Wait. Wait. Do not engage in ministry yet. Now, folks, what a lesson for us. Don't rush into something unprepared. Your orders, men, are to 
Wait, I can just imagine the guys. What? Wait. Jesus had promised the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14. And waiting may be one of the hardest things that we as Christians have to do. These, are, these men are just filled with hope and enthusiasm and energy and excitement. And they are ready to go. Jesus has conquered death. We can do the same thing. Let's go. There's nothing we can't do. Good. But they're not ready yet. They don't have staying power. They need the Holy Spirit. They have been given an impossible mission. And they don't know how hard it's going to be. Yet. It's kind of like being a parent for the first time. You're getting ready to have a baby and you think, oh man, we're excited, we're ready to go. And you don't have any idea how hard it's going to be until you have that baby. And when they're young, you think, boy, this has got to be the hardest part. And then they get to be teenagers. And you learn it wasn't the hardest part. So these men are all excited, but they're not ready yet. They're, they had the comfort of the upper room with Jesus. They have no idea how hard this is going to be. So what do they have against them? The government, organized business, organized religion. They're going to need more than what they have right now. Derek Thomas said this, We see a bunch of disciples unskilled in their understanding, unsteady in their theology, and unsure of where Jesus has gone. Now in verse 4, you have a changing of the guard. Now, I've never been in the military, but I've watched TV. And you, when a one base commander leaves and another one takes over, there's usually a ceremony and a changing of the guard, and one officially steps down and another steps up. That's what's going on here. They're getting their marching orders as this changing of the guard. And the first thing Jesus tells them to do is to wait. Isaiah 41, those who wait upon the Lord will gain strength. Not those who are busy moving, those who will wait. Think about Psalm 46.10. What does it say? Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. So the men were told to wait. And we need to learn the same thing. There are many times that we need to wait. So why do they need the Holy Spirit? I've got five or six things here of why they need the Holy Spirit. Number one. They need the Holy Spirit to help their memories. The New Testament must be written. These men are going to be a part of that. What did Jesus say? When did he say it? What was the context? We're going to have to remember those things. What did he teach? They've got to remember. They have to write it down. They need the Holy Spirit to do that. Number two, they need the Spirit for their own message. They've got to preach God's wisdom, not their wisdom. They've got to preach what the Lord wants them to say, not what they want to say. They need the Holy Spirit to do that. The Old Testament must now be seen in an entirely different light in order to understand the life of Jesus and his death and what took place there. The importance of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Number three, they need the Holy Spirit for their own movements. Where should they go? What should they do? There's, there are only 11 of them. Where are they to go? Number four, they need the Holy Spirit to have energy to preach with power. No one on their own can convert a soul. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. Number five, why do they need the Holy Spirit? To live the Christian life. 
And we need the same thing today. You can't live the Christian life on your own. Number six, they need the Holy Spirit to encourage them. Right now, they're full of zeal, energy, enthusiasm. But you know what's going to happen soon to these men? They're going to be alone. They're going to be rejected. They're going to be beaten. They're going to be put in prison. And we need the same Holy Spirit today that they had. So the disciples were told to wait. All right, verse 5. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Not many days away, just a few days. Now, I want to read you something very interesting that applies to what I just said about why they need the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit is going to do for them. In Acts chapter 11, verse 16, we hear Peter, and Peter says, And I remembered the word of the Lord. I remembered. How he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And that's one reason why you need the Holy Spirit today. As you read your Bible at home, as we get older, I don't remember as well as I used to. We need the Holy Spirit to help us remember. It's historical for Peter. He's looking back. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, we're dealing with the doctrine of what baptism is and what it does. And he's speaking here of taking people into the church, the body of Christ, the Christian church. And he said, not many days from now, the Christian church is about to be born. Now, folks, just think about that. Think about how how far back we are. The birth of the church. We're so used to it. We haven't thought about this. This is going to happen in chapter 2, but it's coming from the risen Lord. Something is going to happen. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you men. And there's a revival coming starting in chapter 2. So in Acts, we see the teaching takes place before revival. Now, we've been praying for revival at my home with soup and supplication once a month. The teaching comes first. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards said. A theological awakening must precede a revival of religion. Now, that's what we need in this country if we want to see a revival. But a theological awakening must precede. Dr. McKay said, first the enlightened mind, then the burning heart. First the enlightened mind, then the revival we need. All right, verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, these men were raised and trained to think that way. They're thinking about an earthly kingdom. Okay, Lord, is it now? Are you going to do it now? Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? They're still looking for an earthly kingdom after spending all of this time with Jesus. They still have political goals. Now, they're struggling to let go of this. So, okay, Jesus, are you finally going to take over? Now, what is his emphasis in verse 3? Look at the very last few words, concerning the kingdom of God. Now, folks, that's the key here. Now, the disciples have a very good question. It's a great question. 
Now, this is the last time they're going to be, be able to ask Jesus something. If you had Jesus with you one time, you could ask him one question, what would it be? It's a good question. He wants to speak about the kingdom of God. So this is a logical question. Jesus has been teaching them for 40 days. What has he been teaching them? The end of verse 3, the kingdom of God. Now, that's a theme all throughout Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 11. So what Jesus said and what they understood were two very different things. They heard God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But this kingdom that Jesus is talking about is focused on two things, grace and love. Now, this can only take place through the Holy Spirit. Calvin said about this question, there are as many errors in the question as there are words. So don't be surprised, folks, when you teach somebody something and they don't pick up on it. Do you remember what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1? He said, To write the same thing again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. So what's he saying? Sometimes we're confused. Sometimes we're slow. It's okay to go over these things again and again and again. All right, verse 7. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates which the Father has fixed by his own authority. So they're asking a good question. It's a good thing. They want Jesus to take over and fix everything. And, and so do I. I want Jesus to take over and fix everything. But Jesus has been with them for 40 days, and they're still confused. They need the Holy Spirit. But notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, okay, you guys had your chance, you blew it, you've messed up too many times, this thing's over. No, it's not going to happen. That isn't what he said. All of these men expect Jesus to take over, and they want Israel to lead the world, similar to what it was with uh, David and uh, Solomon. But Jesus is telling them and us, I'm going to do things in my way and in my time. So what was Jesus' answer to their question? If I can use modern language, here's his answer. Be patient, relax, how about chill out? Now, he doesn't criticize them for asking a question. He doesn't talk about the method. He said, it's not for you to know the time and dates. And I mentioned before, previously, about the, the book, I don't know, was it 88 or 89, but I just say it was 89, where 89 reasons why Jesus will return in 1989. I'm sure it was a bestseller. 89, the, the book shouldn't even have been written. Based on this verse, why would the book, why would the guy even write the book? It's not for us to know the time and the dates. Jesus is saying, just follow my instructions. Don't try to figure this out. And his answer is a warning to all of us. I'm going to form a church. I'm going to have a people. That's going to be my emphasis. We don't need to be talking about times and dates. Jesus could have said, it's none of your business. But what is their business? Their business is verse 8. He said, I have something else for you. So before we read verse 8, I want to ask you a question for you can look at it. What's the most important thing here? Is it the mission of the church? 
or a program of the church? Is it the mission of the church or the program of the church? Okay, look at verse 8 now. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. So this is Jesus' answer to the question they have in verse 6. This verse is going to fulfill what's going on in the book of Acts. Now notice how he starts verse 8. Starts off, but, using the word but, which takes us back to verse 6. Verse 8 is his answer. So what is his answer? You will receive power. Here it's you. You are the ones that will receive it. No mention of how. No program here, no conditions placed on the apostles, no instructions. Why? Because it doesn't depend on them. This is all of God. This is a sovereign God doing this. Power, the Spirit in you. The apostles need the Holy Spirit for the work that's going to come ahead of them. Now, it's in a passive voice, which means it is a divine act. They didn't ask for this. Power, not a program. No details. Now, quite frankly, this isn't the answer they're looking for. But it's not a new idea in the Bible. Jeremiah 31, Joel chapter 2, the power of the church comes from the Holy Spirit, not from the people. So what does he say in verse 8? You'll receive this power, then you shall be my witnesses. We find that 29 times. What is a witness? A witness is someone who testifies in court about something that they personally saw. So a witness is someone who would tell us what he saw. Now, in a courtroom, the court isn't interested in your opinion. They aren't interested in ideas. They want to know, what do you know? And all of us are called to be witnesses. So this is an outline for the book of Acts. This verse 8 is the outline for the entire book. Now, where are they to be witnesses? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. So how far is this witness to be spread? Now, this must have been absolutely shocking to these men. I want you to cover the entire known world. Now, I can just see some of those guys, when they hear this, they're going, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven of us. Jesus, I have a question. There's eleven of these guys. And he just told them to go to the entire world. So let's think about where they're to go. To go to Jerusalem. Well, that's their hometown. But I, I could see more questions. Uh, Jesus, uh, they don't like you there. They crucified you there. One writer said that Jerusalem was the most wicked city on earth. Sad. God's temple's there. Judea. Okay, well, that's their own country. Same language, same customs, that kind of thing. So just go and meet strangers and get used to traveling a little bit. Uh, but Jesus, they rejected you there. It's your community, guys. That's where I want you to go. Samaria. Now that's beyond their country. Same continent. It's their most. It's the closest neighbor country, the most familiar foreign culture that they know. But there's only one problem. These guys don't like the Samaritans. 
Now you fill in the blank. Who do you not like? Who do you not want to witness to? Who do you not want to take the gospel to? These guys don't like the Samaritans. And they're not willing to do it. And they would not make the first move. The Holy Spirit had to send Philip a deacon to make the first move because the 12 wouldn't go until some kind of revival broke out there. They're thinking, these guys are a bunch of half-breeds. We don't like them. Mixed people, mixed religion. Laura, we don't really want to know those people. What can these men know? You will receive power. Now, to the remotest parts of the earth. That means all the nations from sea to sea. So the Holy Spirit gives them the master plan, and that includes the Gentiles, non-Jews, and folks, that was unheard of in that day. So Jesus is rocking their world. Now, have there been times in your life when Christ has rocked your world? It'll happen. If it hasn't happened, it will happen. And he is rocking their world now. So this is what Jesus told them to do in Matthew chapter 28 that Ethan read. This is the great commission to them and to us. And it's given to every single believer. It's our job, your job, my job to get the word out. The great commission to get this story told to millions of people. Today, you and I are called to be witnesses. And I would just challenge you. Are you doing that? Am I doing that? We begin at home. In our local neighborhood, with our friends and our families, Kent Hughes said this, don't be a water boy in the game of life. What's he mean by that? You can be a water boy and watch others who are doing it, but the Lord wants you to do it. He wants me to do it. Don't be a water boy in the game of life. The apostles are going to walk this walk, not in a perfect way, but they're going to walk this walk. That's something I wanted to read to you. George Whitfield, I, I have a, I feel a special closeness to Whitfield. I was struggling with something in my life years ago, really hurting bad over it. Just happened in God's providence to pick up a book about George Whitfield, and it really helped me with the problem that I was facing. So talked all with George Whitfield. When George Whitfield was getting the people of Edinburgh out of their beds at 5 o'clock in the morning to hear his preaching, I just can't help but stop. How many of you will be here tomorrow morning if, I, if I'm preaching at 5 o'clock in the morning? Jenny said she'd be here. Jenny, you be here? She said yes. I, I don't think many of you are going to be here at 5 o'clock. So this really got my attention. Well, they were getting out of their beds at 5 o'clock to hear his preaching. A man on his way to the church met David Hume, the Scottish philosopher and skeptic. You better, that's putting it nicely. Surprised at seeing him on the way to hear Whitfield, the man said, I thought you did not believe in the gospel. And he replied, I do not, but he does. So folks, you, when you witness to folks, you don't have to have all the answers. Somebody could say to you, well, what about six-day creation, this, that, and the other? You could say, I don't know, but what I do know is what Christ did for me. That's all you got to do. I don't know the answer to that, 
But what I do know is what Christ did for me. So Jesus is saying, not verse 6, but verse 8. Not this, but. So this is what I want you guys to focus on. And we can learn a lot as a church what we should be focusing on from this. So this is the fourfold division that we're going to find in the book of Acts. So today, we have a lot of questions. I do. The apostles had a lot of questions. Jesus did not answer all of those questions. What is his answer? Look to the Holy Spirit to guide you. Now, how are you going to get that guidance? You get it by being in God's house, sitting under God's word, reading your Bible at home, praying in the car, wherever it may be. You've got to have that relationship that's a package deal and ask the Holy Spirit to guide you. I'll end with this. I don't remember who said this. A spiritual awakening always soars on the wings of the word. No matter how long people neglect the truth of God's word. Say it again. A spiritual awakening always soars on the wings of the word. No matter how long people neglect the truth of God's word. That has to be the emphasis. God's word Sorry, Andy Stanley, it's not science. It's God's word. Let's pray. Well, Father, we know that as believers, we are sinners saved by grace. I say things I shouldn't say. I make mistakes standing right up here in front of these people. I've made mistakes over the years. But we need the Holy Spirit. And I pray, Lord, that you will cause your Holy Spirit to develop and grow us as a people, individually and as a church, as we seek through our weak ways to fulfill the Great Commission. And I pray that you'll give each one of us opportunities this week to tell others what Christ has done for us. We pray and ask in Jesus' name, amen.